Well, good morning, Third Street. <laughs> Welcome. My name is Rachel. I'm Corey's wife. It's been a long time since I've gotten to, to preach and be with you. And some of you know why that is. Corey talked about it. I was, you know, having a baby. And that takes a little bit of time, but it's good to be back. It's good to be sharing the word with you this morning. And we've just got a couple of announcements as we're getting started. Um, first and foremost, um, remember that you can always uh, do your giving online, thirdstreetchurch.com, click give. But when you do that, you're going to notice that there's an additional drop down for the rest of this month. So starting now, going all the way through the end of the year, there's something that says Christmas Eve. And every year you know that we give our Christmas Eve offering away, 100% of it. We do not keep anything in-house. It all goes out into our community. And this year, we are really excited to be able to bless Tikva. Some of you guys know what Tikva is. I think like half of the church works there. Um, but Tikva is an after-school program here in the community. They've been a, a staple part of our community for years, um, and they serve families and youth um, through their after-school program, through their initiatives that they do in the community. And this year, 100% of our offering is going to be going to Tikva Hands of Hope. And so if you would like to give towards our Christmas Eve offering, you can give once or you can give weekly, whatever you'd like to do. Just go to thirdstreetchurch.com, click give, and then make sure that you select uh, Christmas Eve offering. And 100% of what comes in to that fund will go to Tikva. Secondly, um, depending on how you're joining us right now, you might notice that we're doing something a little bit different. Um, we're streaming our services on Church Gather Online, just like always. But on top of that, because our huddles are, are dispersed and taking a pause for the month of December, we are also running our services on um, Facebook Live for the rest of the year. So through, through the next four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we are going to be running our services at 11 a.m., on Facebook Live. And so if you're joining us that way, welcome. Um, if you're confused trying to find service, that's where we are for the next four weeks. We'll still be using Church Gather Online just like usual, um, but we wanted to have the opportunity to be uh, talking to one another, that feeling of being together as much as we can during COVID-19 and the craziness that is 2020. Um, we'll be utilizing Facebook so we can talk to each other during service and things like that while our huddles um, are taking a break during December. And one last announcement for today. Uh, we, starting on December 1st, are going to be doing a church-wide observation of Advent through a daily devotional. And so to find that daily devotional, it'll be housed on Church Gather. We'll also be posting it on all of our socials. So make sure that you follow Third Street on Facebook or that you find us on Instagram. It's at Third Street Church. We'll be posting daily devotionals from December 1st through December 24th, observing Advent. If I said that word and that was confusing to you and you're like, what is Advent? Well, then you're just like me because the first time that I heard that in church, I had no idea what that meant. I didn't know what the pastor was talking about. I had never heard of it in my life. Um, if you grew up in a non-denominational church like I did, it's something that you don't really hear that often. Um, Advent is a really, really special season. During Advent, the church looks back 
on Christ coming for the first time when he came as a baby in a manger through Mary. And it also looks at a celebratory time anticipating when he will come back. And so Advent is this season of waiting. It looks at four specific themes of hope, peace, joy, and love. Those are going to be the themes of our Sunday mornings for the next few weeks. We're going to be tying in our Sunday mornings with that daily devotional as we sit in this season of hopeful waiting, looking with such anticipation to Christmas and the coming of Christ as a baby, and then sitting in hopeful waiting where we wait for Christ's return again. But see, during Advent, we run this dangerous risk of jumping straight to Jesus. Because we're getting excited about Christmas, we're setting up, if you're like me, you're setting up the manger scene, you've got, you've got the, little, um, the little figurines with, you know, Mary sitting down by the manger, you've got probably a shepherd that's like holding, holding a little lamb, and then you've got Joseph who's like standing stoically next to the manger, which the reality is if you've ever witnessed uh, someone having a child, the father was probably cowering down like, oh my gosh, I have to care for this thing and I have no idea what I'm doing. So he probably wasn't standing stoically, but that's for another time. Um, but you're probably setting up those manger scenes and you're jumping straight to Jesus because it's Christmas and that's what we want to do. But Advent is about sitting in the season of anticipation. It's about allowing yourself to sit in waiting because waiting, waiting is what builds our faith. And today, as we talk about hope, as we look into that theme, we're talking about hopeful waiting. And where we're going to be for the next few weeks and specifically for today is in the book of Isaiah in chapter 42. So I want you to grab your Bibles, grab your device, grab whatever it is that you read scripture through and get to Isaiah 42. And while you do that, I want to tell you a little bit about who Isaiah was. See, Isaiah was a prophet. A prophet is just this fancy word that we use to describe someone who was an inspired teacher and who hears from God. That's all a prophet is. When you hear that, it's an inspired teacher or someone who hears from God. In Isaiah's book, he has over 60 chapters, over 60 chapters of prophecy and of promise. He has over 60 chapters of things that he had to say about who God was. This book was written specifically to call the nation of Judah back to God. To call the nation of Judah back to God. And what that means is so important. We need to understand what it means that he was calling Judah back to God. You see, the nation of Judah, the nation of Judah was this whole family of people who came from a man named Judah. And Judah was one of the 12 sons of a guy named Jacob. Now, Jacob came to be known as Israel. Israel, and we've heard that a lot, right? The people of Israel. The people of Israel were descendants of the man Israel, who's the same man, Jacob, who had 12 sons, and Jacob's 12 sons became the 12 tribes. And so when we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, we're talking about the 12 sons who had many more sons, who created a nation. And Judah, Judah is the tribe which would eventually bring us King David, which would eventually bring us the person of Jesus, the Messiah. And so the tribe that would give us Jesus had to be called back to God. 
The tribe that would give us Jesus forgot who they were. The tribe that would give us Jesus became unfaithful people. But God used that nation. And God fulfilled his promises. And so Isaiah, what he's doing here, is calling that nation of Judah back to God. And what's so important to be noted is that he was doing this 700 years, 700 years before Jesus would be born. So 700 years before Jesus came, these prophecies were written. Imagine that timeline. Imagine that. So take all of that and let's look at chapter 42, verse 1. We're going to be looking at 1 to 4, but I want to take these one at a time. So first, in verse 1, in verse 1, Isaiah writes, Look at my servant whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Stop there. That's just verse 1. This is what God is saying to Isaiah to communicate. Look at my servant whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. Now, I think what's the most important thing to say first about this passage is that this is about Jesus and no one else. This is about Jesus and no one else. This is about no other king. This is about no other pastor. This is about no political leader. This is about absolutely no one but Jesus. See, something that Corey has taught us here at Third Street and something that he says all the time is beware of the dangers of casual reading. Scripture cannot mean what it never meant. We cannot take this passage and slap it on a leader that we find hopeful. We cannot take these words and put them on our pastor and be like, ooh, my pastor looks like this. I think my pastor is going to bring justice to the nations. Ooh, this person I cast my vote for, I think that they're going to bring justice to the nations. This is about Jesus and no one else. You see, when Israel is hearing this, when these words are being delivered by Isaiah, they're living in, in absolute turmoil. They're living in captivity. They're living in a land that is not their own. They're being, having a culture forced on them that is not their own. They're being told to behave in a way that is against scripture. They're being told to behave in a way that goes against the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible that they were given that gave them instructions for how to live as people of God. They're living in captivity. They're eating food. They're marrying people. They're behaving in ways that are not who they are. And Isaiah is saying to them, there is one coming. There is one coming who I, God, am going to strengthen. He is going to bring justice. He is going to bring you back to who you were. He is going to restore all hope. He is going to, he is going to bring justice to you. God, through this prophecy, through Isaiah, is trying to give his people a hope beyond their captivity. And it is impossible. It is impossible for the Lord 
to pledge his word and then go back on it. Because he is a good God. He is a good father who gives good gifts, and it is impossible for him to go back on his word. Point number one, the word of God brings hope in our waiting. The word of God brings hope in our waiting. When we wait on God, our faith is built up. When we wait on God, our hope is challenged. When we wait on God, instead of taking things into our own hands, we are refined. We don't wait on God because he's, because he's sitting up in heaven and he's just sitting up there like, eh, not today. I don't really feel like it. God's approach to our reconciliation to him is not the same as my approach to the gym. God did not, God did not wake up in the morning and be like, mm, tomorrow. Like, that's not what he does. That's what I do. Absolutely, that's what I do. Oh, my gosh, how many times in my life have I thought, mm, I should probably do laundry? Uh, not today. That's every day. I hate laundry. I hate laundry more than anything else under the sun. God's approach to our reconciliation is not the same as my approach to laundry and the gym. We are not waiting because he doesn't feel like it. We're waiting because that is what is good for us. We are waiting because that is what will build our faith. The word of God brings hope in our waiting. Verse 2. Verse 2 says, he will not shout or raise his voice in public. He will not shout or raise his voice in public. Now, remember, I, I told you just a second ago that this is about Jesus and no one else. Well, this specific section of scripture, not just this verse, but this whole section in Isaiah, this is actually fulfilled in Matthew 12. This is one of those situations in scripture where we get to read it and then we also get to see it. See, in Matthew 12, this prophecy is fulfilled when, uh, when there's some Pharisees who get upset with Jesus. That's like a regular theme in the Gospels, right? Well, in this section, Jesus heals and does some miracles on the Sabbath. And they really took exception to that, despite some things that the Pharisees had, had done in their own lives that were not in line with Scripture. They saw Jesus, and they're like, mm -mm -mm, you can't do that. You can't do that. He healed on the Sabbath, and they took exception to it. And in verse 15 in Matthew 12, it says, But Jesus knew what they were planning. You see, when they got mad about him healing on the Sabbath, they plotted to have him killed. And it says, But Jesus knew what they were planning. So he left that area, and many people followed him. He healed all the sick among them, but he warned them not to reveal who he was. This fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah concerning him that said, look at my servant whom I have chosen. He is my beloved who pleases me. I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. Matthew, when he wrote this gospel, intentionally included some passages where Jesus was fulfilling these prophecies. Jesus did exactly what it was said that he would do. He knew, he knew that the Pharisees were plotting to kill him, but he just walked away. He just walked away. It's important to note that the word of God, the word of God is never going to get you out of pocket. 
The word of God is never going to take you where you shouldn't be. It's never going to guide you to do something that you shouldn't do. And it's not that Jesus never spoke loudly. It's not that Jesus never publicly declared who he was. We saw that he did that. It's not that Jesus never got upset. We saw that he flipped the tables in the temple. It's not that Jesus never did these things. It's that Jesus never acted out of impulse or impatience. Jesus acted out of his calling. He never acted out of pocket. You see, when we shout, when we get angry, and we act wrongly, we're acting out of impatience. Point number two, there's a difference between shouting out of impatience and correcting because of injustice. Say that again. There's a difference between shouting out of impatience and correcting because of injustice. I'm a mother of three girls. I have a lot of experience acting and shouting out of impatience. My, um, my second child, Kaylee, you guys are laughing because you know her, um, I love Kaylee. I love her so much. Um, it's very hard to parent Kaylee. And, and I say that in the most loving way possible. When I talk to my parents about like, oh my gosh, I just don't know what to do with Kaylee. Every time, you know what my dad says to me? He says, that's the child that you deserve to have. Because apparently, I was just like her. Um, so I like to think that her strong-willed nature is going to serve her well later in life. Um, but I have to let her get to later in life. And parenting Kaylee... It's so hard because she is, she's four and a half years old and she is so smart. It's almost impossible to argue with Kaylee. Nine times out of 10, what happens with Kaylee when I'm trying to correct her is that she's saying something and she's not wrong. But it's the way that she's saying it. So with Kaylee, one of the biggest frustrations here in, in these last few weeks has been that Sarah was doing, on, Sarah's my oldest, that she was doing online kindergarten for the first uh, nine weeks of school. Um, I wholeheartedly believe that online kindergarten was sent so that all parents could learn the depth of their own depravity and need for a savior. Because online kindergarten is horrible, horrible. Kaylee, Kaylee would sit next to her sister. She would listen to all of the lessons off screen so that Sarah's teacher couldn't see her, but she was sitting there and she was learning everything. And then Kaylee would get frustrated with Sarah because she wasn't getting her work done fast enough to play. And so Kaylee then, I caught my four-year-old doing my six-year-old's homework because she wanted her sister to be done and play with her. And so I'm pulling her aside and I'm like, Kaylee, I know, I know that Sarah doesn't always focus. I know that she um, kind of gets off task and all over the place, but you can't do your sister's homework. And she's like, ugh, mom, I just want her to get done. And she's like, I know the answers. And I'm like, Kaylee, I know that you know the answers. You can't do your sister's homework for her. I need you to leave her alone and, and come with me. And this whole huge argument ensues between Kaylee and I, which is like a daily occurrence in our house. And what happens is, I'm sure you think that this is going to end in me scolding Kaylee and the lessons for her, but the lessons for me, the lessons for me, 
I lose my cool with Kaylee. I start yelling at her. I start telling her, you can't do this. You can't do your sister's homework for her. She can't rely on you. You need to let her do the deal. And I'm just, and I'm rattling off all these reasons why she needs to leave her sister alone. And you know how I feel at the end of, of yelling at my four-year-old? Yelling. Not talking loudly. Yelling at my four-year-old. And she's crying. And, and at the end of it, I'm like, she just wanted her sister to play with her. She thought that she was doing a helpful thing by giving Sarah answers. She thought that, well, if I just help her get done faster, she can play with me. She doesn't understand that she's affecting the grades that her sister is getting. She doesn't understand that you can't do this because her whole life up to this point, I have been teaching them that they need to work together. I have been teaching them that they need to help each other. And so I'm losing my cool and I'm shouting at her out of impatience, and I'm, and I'm letting this four-year-old have it, like that's anything productive to do. Jesus did not come to shame us. He did not come to shame us. He came to show us better so that we can do better. The, the point that I was trying to make to Kaylee was, hey, you can't do somebody else's work. You can't be acting like that. You're not wrong. The answers that you're giving are not wrong. You're wanting to help your, your sister is not wrong, but you can't do that. And what I, was, what I was correcting her with, the point of what I was correcting her with, wasn't wrong, but I can't, I can't behave like that. Jesus could have turned around and shouted at the Pharisees. He could have said anything he wanted about who he was, he wouldn't have been wrong, but that wasn't the right way for him to go about delivering the message, and he knew that. He showed us that there is a time and a place. There is a time and a place for you to righteously allow your feelings to be shown. There is a right way to do it. Just because your thinking is right doesn't always mean that your actions are. There's a difference between shouting out of impatience and correcting because of injustice. Those are two very different things. We have been shown a better way to behave. We've been shown a better way to communicate. And so it's our responsibility as Christians, as leaders, as, as friends, as neighbors, it's our responsibility to act better, and to discern the time and place to raise our voice. As we keep going in verse 3, we're going to look at verses 3 and 4 together. It says, He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. He will bring justice to all who have been wronged. He will not falter or lose heart until justice prevails throughout the earth, even distant lands beyond the sea, will wait for his instruction. Getting straight directly to the point on this section, verse point three, God sees your circumstances and he has not forgotten you. God sees your circumstances and he has not forgotten you. If you feel crushed, it's not the end. 
If you're sitting in injustice, it's not the end. If you feel forgotten, it is not the end. If you feel like giving up, you're not at the end. If you feel exhausted, this is not the end. If you are sitting in weeping in confusion, it's not the end. God has not forgotten you. This word was given 700 years before the arrival of Jesus, 700 years before Jesus came, he was talked about. And get this, there was a period of 400 years of silence where Israel didn't even hear from God, where God didn't even say a word. There was 400 years of complete silence before Jesus was even born. You don't think people were sitting in confusion during that time? I'm sure they felt forgotten. I'm sure they felt abandoned. I'm sure they felt lost. But you know what we know sitting on this side of history? We know that those prophecies were fulfilled. We know that God did what he said what he was going to do. We know a savior that came. They had to sit in hopeful waiting and anticipation for that to come to fruition. And Isaiah 55 It says, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Where nettles grew, myrtles will sprout up. This will bring glory and honor to the name of the Lord. It says, where things felt abandoned, God was faithful. Where things felt forgotten, God came through. Where people sat and felt hopeless, a Savior came. It's not our job to try and figure out what God was going to do. It's not our job to figure out how God is going to redeem this situation. It's our job to act as John the Baptist and pave the way. It's our job to act as the woman at the well, to sit at the feet of Jesus, and then take him back to our city so that everybody's coming with us. It's not our job to figure out how to get to the end. It's our job to have faith that the ending is good. Where there is failure... God is not finished. I know, I know that things feel weird right now. I'm talking to a nearly empty gym right now. I know that, that church, we want to be together and in the same place. But let me tell you something. This is not the first time that this gym has gone from full to empty. This is not the first time that this building has had to close its doors. Some of you guys were around, so you remember, but most of you were not. In 2012, the Martin Center had to shut its doors. In 2012, we had been open for a season, and for a few different reasons, we had to take our ministry out of here. We had to close our doors. There was no open gyms. There weren't meals. There wasn't youth group. There wasn't gatherings in this gym. And it wasn't because of a global pandemic. It was because of things that we didn't understand. And you know what we did? You know what we did in that season? We met in our homes. We met in our living rooms. 
Because we knew then the same way we know now that the church does not exist because of a building. The church exists because of the hope and faithfulness of God and Jesus Christ. Eight years ago, we did exactly what we're doing right now. We had a Christmas service in our living rooms. We don't need a building to have church. And I know that that's something that you've been hearing since March, right? Because that's the hopeful thing that we say in this pandemic. We're like, oh, we don't need the church. The church doesn't need a building. I know that you miss community. And I know that you miss gathering. But you know what else I know? I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the church of God is going to come back stronger because that's what it did. Because you know what happened when we were able to open our doors again? You know what happened? This place exploded. This place exploded. That's when Third Street Community Church came to be known as you know it now. Because we were faithful in that waiting period. Because we didn't stop just because, oh, things got hard and, oh, like the way my schedule's lined up and, oh, you don't know what I've been going through and, ah, uh, you don't really know what's been happening in my house. You see, my situation's been harder than anybody else's because let me tell you about this. My life is more difficult than anybody else's and so I just couldn't keep up because, you know, church gather and this and that and I couldn't find the link and it got a little bit hard. Well, you know what? Those are excuses. Those are excuses. We are supposed to actively wait, not sit on our hands. Have you ever been around a person who's getting ready to have company? Have you ever been around a person? You know what people do when they're getting ready to have company? They go crazy. They're like, I need you guys to get your stuff picked up. I need you to get the vacuum. Um, hey, I need you to get, hey, get your socks out of the living room because why are your socks in the living room? And then you get mad at your roommates and you're like, why haven't you done dishes for a month? I'm sick of these dishes. You need to do your dishes. You freak out. You start yelling at everybody. You prepare the way because you know that someone's coming. And you want that person, when, when they get to your house, you want them to love your house. You want them to feel comfortable. You don't want them to feel like, ooh, I don't think I want to sit on this couch because what is that? You clean up. You do something. You actively wait and you move in anticipation because you're excited about the arrival. When we had to close our doors in 2012, we did everything that we'd been doing here and we just did it out there. And that's what we're supposed to be doing now as the church. Take what you've been doing inside the church and do it at home. You don't need me to hand you some like really nasty little square of bread and a pre-measured pre thing of grape juice to be like, here, take communion. Because you know what I'm sure you have in your house? Bread. I'm positive you got bread in some form. Even if you're gluten-free, they make gluten-free bread. It's 2020. They didn't stop making that stuff. You just got to buy it quicker because everybody's hoarding. You can take communion at home. You can love your neighbors at home. And you know what's going to happen when you come back? The way that you have prepared your heart in the season of waiting is going to make you a stronger light in your community. It's going to make you more excited to be back with your people because you actively waited, because you were ready. You truly felt the hope and joy of the presence of God because of what you were longing for in the season of waiting. 
Advent is about hopeful waiting. This Advent season, what I want you to do is to engage and repent and actively wait. I want you to engage the hope of Jesus. Look at the places where you have felt like giving up, like the places where you have felt despair, and I want you to know that God sees those circumstances. Engage the hope of Jesus in those circumstances. I want you to repent. When Isaiah recorded this, he was calling Judah back to God. He was calling the tribe that would bring the Messiah back to God. I want you to reflect on the places in your life where you have gone far from God. We've all done it. It's okay to admit it. I encourage you to admit it, please. What do you need to give back to him? And then actively wait. Don't sit around and do nothing. Get your heart and get your people ready to receive Jesus. The hope of Jesus is as real right now as it was when Isaiah said these words thousands of years ago. What I don't want you to do right now, you can see that I'm getting to the conclusion. You can see that I'm getting to the ending. And so you're going down your to-do list, right? You're like, where am I going next? What do I need to do when I shut this off? You might even have shut your journal and been like, I wrote down the last point, right? Well, you did. But what I don't want you to do is stop this recording and just get to your daily life. Because I'll just be 100% real with you. If that's what you do, you just wasted an hour of your life. If you listen to the word of God just to have it tickle your ears, well, then you're wasting your time. We engage the word of God so that we can see transformation in our lives. And so before, before you get back to your to-do list and before you make your brunch, before you walk into your office, if you're listening to this at lunch, what I want you to do is answer three questions. Just take some time when you shut this off and answer three questions. Open your journal back up because I'm going to give them to you. What do you need to do to engage the hope of Jesus? What do you need to do to engage the hope of Jesus? Next question, what do you need to turn away from so that you can turn to Jesus? What do you need to turn away from so that you can turn to Jesus? And our last question, how can you actively wait on Jesus? How can you actively wait on Jesus? Because that, that is the heart of Advent. And so for this next month, that's the question we're going to be asking on repeat. How can you actively wait on Jesus? The hope of Jesus is as real right now as it was when Isaiah said these words thousands of years ago. Let's actively wait on Jesus. Bless us.